if I had been in the garden, if you had been in the garden, we would have made exactly the same choice. That's why it's not unfair for God to have Adam represent us. Because it doesn't matter who it is. We're all making the same choice. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part four of a series titled The True and Better Adam. Last time we began a look at how Jesus Christ is our representative in life and in death, representing everyone who would repent and believe in Him, just as Adam represents us in the inheritance and penalty of sin. We were reminded that in Adam, all humanity has sinned and that all should receive the punishment that sin deserves. But as you'll discover today, God did not abandon us to sin. God the Father sent His Son to stand in our place as our representative. You'll learn that though perfect in every way, Jesus died the death we deserved while living the fully righteous life we should have lived. And it is through this incredible substitution that believers are made right with God. Are you trusting in the work of Christ alone for your salvation? Let's join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Pelagius taught this, we inherit no moral corruption from Adam through our parents. And in fact, we are born, Pelagius taught, without a sin nature. In other words, we're like blank slates. We can either choose righteousness or we can choose sin, but we're a blank slate. This was condemned, understandably, as heresy. This is contrary to what the Scriptures clearly teach. A second part of the Pelagian view is not heresy, but I think it's equally troubling, and that is we bear no personal guilt for Adam's sin. There's no connection between Adam's sin and us. So what would they do then with this expression, all sin? Well, Pelagius and his followers would interpret it this way. We choose to sin because we choose to follow Adam's bad example. That's all. According to Pelagian theology, the sin of Adam had no effect on us whatsoever except that of a bad example. Now, the immediate context absolutely trounces this view. We'll see as we walk our way through it, because Paul says there is a relationship between Adam's sin and ours beyond that of example. So this one cannot stand, both because part of it's heresy and because the context absolutely destroys it. Second view about the relationships between Adam's sin and us is Calvin's view, inherited sinful nature. Calvin said, we inherit moral corruption from Adam through our parents, and all the rest of the views will say that, because that's what the Scriptures teach. We're born sinful. Without doing anything, we have a sinful nature. We are morally corrupt. That's why you don't have to teach your children to lie or steal or hit their friends. It's natural. But Calvin also said, we bear no personal guilt for Adam's sin. So he said, by all sinned here, Paul meant this, we have all committed personal sins because we inherited moral corruption from Adam through our parents. In other words, sin here means what it always sins. I I sin, you sin, we all sin. It can't be that. 
This can't be the right interpretation of this passage, and let me show you why. Look down at verse 18. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, through one transgression, Adam's transgression, there resulted, notice he doesn't say corruption. What does he say? Condemnation. The word condemnation means legal guilt. So we're not talking about corruption. We got legal guilt. All men got legal guilt through Adam's one transgression. So we have to discount that second view. There's a third view about all sin. And this one gets a little closer to reality. This one is called the seminal or realistic view. This was the view of Augustine, the early church father. He said, again, we inherit moral corruption from Adam through our parents. And he says, we do bear personal guilt. That is legal guilt. We're not talking about guilty feelings. We're talking about real legal guilt before God because of Adam's sin. Why? He said, because we really or seminally were in Adam when he sinned. So here's how Augustine would interpret all sin. He would say, we all really sinned in Adam because we were really there in his loins when he sinned. You say, where does that idea come from? Well, if you remember the writer to the Hebrews, at one point is talking about the superiority of Christ's priesthood, and he says that, that Levi was in the loins of Abraham and offered a tithe to Melchizedek. You remember that? It's, he's basically using this seminal argument. And so they would say, well, the same thing must be true with Christ. So they would say all sin. Augustine would say, or the seminal view would say, when Paul says all sin, we really sin because we were in his loins. Now this view falls short in several ways. Think about this now. If that was the explanation, it can't explain why we're guilty only of Adam's first sin and not all of his sins. We were in him seminally when he committed all of his sins. It also can't explain for why we're not guilty of the sins of all of our ancestors because we were in them seminally when they sinned. In addition, verse 14 specifically says that many of Adam's descendants between Adam and Moses did not commit Adam's sin. But I think the biggest argument against this view, and the most important one, is that it destroys the parallel in this passage between Christ and Adam. Why are we righteous in Christ? Are we righteous in Christ because we were in Christ seminally? Of course not. We are righteous in Christ because He acted in our place and it was credited to us. The parallelism in this passage insists that the same thing be true of Adam. And so I think this third view has to go away as well. So that brings us to the fourth view, and the one that I would recommend to you as the legitimate interpretation of this passage. It's called the representative headship view. It's the reform view. It also says we inherit moral corruption from Adam through our parents, but then it says this, we bear personal guilt for Adam's sin, not because we were in him really or seminally when he sinned, but because God appointed Adam as our federal head or representative. So in this case, all sinned means we all sinned in Adam because God had appointed him as our representative. He acted for us, and we received the consequences of his sinful choice. Now, don't misunderstand. This view does not deny that everyone has, in fact, sinned. I mean, Paul's already made this point back in chapter 3, verse 23. 
for all have sinned. Nor does it deny that we all have a sinful nature. And that's, that's terrible, and it condemns us as well. Paul's made that point in the first three chapters of Romans. Instead, this view simply argues that Paul just isn't talking about those things in this verse. Now, let me give you several reasons why all sin, in verse 12, must mean all men bear personal guilt for and die because of Adam's sin. Let me give you several reasons. Number one, the theme of this passage is representative headship. The main point of this passage is tied to the word one. The word one occurs 12 times in this paragraph, six times in reference to Adam. Watch it with me. Look at verse 12. Through one man, sin entered the world. Verse 15, this is a key verse. By the transgression of the one, the many died. Verse 16, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation for all. Notice the word condemnation is legal guilt. One transgression resulted in legal guilt, and in context of verse 16, for all. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned. Verse 18, here's another key verse. Through one transgression, Adam's, there resulted legal guilt, condemnation to all men. Verse 19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made or constituted as sinners. Clearly then, what I want you to see is that we all sin through Adam as he served as our representative. So the, the very theme of this passage argues for this interpretation. There's a second argument, and I'll come back to this. Let me just touch on it here. All who die in infancy die without personal sin, and yet they die. Why? Death is a sentence that comes because of sin. They don't sin personally, so why do they die? It's because of the guilt of Adam's sin that has been credited to them. Now let me be clear. Biblical scholars, almost universally through the history of the church, the creeds universally declare that those who die in infancy and those who die without mental capacity to understand their own sin or the gospel, God in grace saves them all. I believe that with all of my heart. I think that's the character of God. So we're not talking about their end. We're talking about why do they die? They die not for their personal sin, but because the sin of Adam has been credited to them, and death is the sentence of that sin. Thirdly, and I think this is a key argument, the parallelism between Christ and Adam means that the sin and condemnation that comes to us from Adam must come to us in the same way that righteousness and justification comes to us from Christ. In other words, both are credited to our account. And then the fourth argument I would give is Paul's specific arguments here in verses 13 and 14, which we'll consider in just a moment. So here's the big point of the passage. God appointed Adam as your representative, as it has often been expressed even in, in elementary primers in the past in our country. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. 
Here's how the Westminster Confession and the Baptist Confession put it, and I'm going to just give you a portion of it in the interest of time. Our first parents, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of their sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. That's what this passage teaches. Now, when you hear that you and everybody else you ever know, everybody who's ever existed or will exist, God has credited the guilt for Adam's sin to you, and you will die because of Adam's sin. What is our first response to that? Tom, you can't be teaching that because that's just not fair. Yeah, you get it. It's not fair. What do you mean? Well, it is fair. And let me explain to you why it is fair. Let me give you several reasons that Adam serving as our representative in the garden was not unfair. I mean, think about it. Adam was in the perfect position to make the right decision on our behalf and on his. I mean, he only faced one prohibition. There was only one thing Adam couldn't do, and that was eat of the fruit of that one tree. Can we put it this way? There was only one temptation open to him. Think about how many temptations are open to you. Also, he was not fallen. He didn't have a sinful nature that sort of leaned in the direction of sin and rebellion. And his fallen faculty, or his unfallen faculties rather, were greatly superior to ours. So he could represent us very well. In addition, he lived in a perfect environment. He was married to a perfect spouse. There was nobody around to lead him astray. There was only God and an absolutely perfect situation. Now, folks, really, do you think that you could do better in your current circumstances? You'd do better representing yourself than Adam did? That brings me to a second reason I would say it's not fair. And that is, we have proven every day of our lives that we would make the same choice. You have proven every day of your life. I have proven every day of my life that we would have made exactly the same choice. James Montgomery Boyce writes, If God had chosen to judge us as each of us think we would like to be judged, that is, in and for ourselves, with no relationship to any other person, then we would all inevitably perish. The bottom line is this, if I had been in the garden, if you had been in the garden, we would have made exactly the same choice. That's why it's not unfair for God to have Adam represent us, because it doesn't matter who it is. We're all making the same choice. Not unfair. But I think the major reason it's not unfair is this is the only way that God can credit the work of Christ to us. Remember that word credit? We saw it back often in chapter 4 of Romans. It means to post something in a ledger, to credit something to someone's account. Another word for credit is to impute. Imputation is at the heart of the gospel. In fact, in salvation, as we've discovered, there are really three great acts of imputation, all involving our representatives, Adam and Christ. Great act of imputation number one, God credits the guilt for Adam's sin to all people. That's what we're learning in this paragraph. If you have repented and believed, there's a second great act of imputation. God credits the guilt of our sin to Christ, our representative. 
And there's a third great act of imputation. God credits Christ's death for sin and his righteousness to us. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's 1 Peter 2.24. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And then we get his righteousness so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So if it bothers you that you receive the guilt for Adam's sin, if you're tempted to think, wait a minute, Tom, that's unfair, be careful. Because that is exactly the same way you get credit for Christ's death and his righteousness. Through the imputation of the actions of one who serves as your representative. Here's my point. If it's unfair for God to credit Adam's sin to us, then it is equally unfair for God to credit our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. If God could not legally and justly allow Adam to be our representative, then he cannot legally and justly allow Christ to be our representative. If one is unfair, so is the other. But thank God it is not unfair. In the case of crediting Adam's sin to us, it is justice. And in the case of crediting our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us, it is grace. But there's no injustice anywhere, injustice anywhere to be found. God credited the guilt of Adam's sin to all men. Now, having said that, at the end of verse 12, Paul interrupts himself to explain and defend that statement. So look at verses 13 and 14. We have Adam's representation defended. Paul understands that what he has just said that all men sinned through Adam, was just as revolutionary and controversial in his day as it is today. And so, he interrupts himself to defend it. Notice verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. Now, let me tell you what he's going to do in verses 13 and 14. He's going to say that people sinned, but not in the same way Adam did, and yet they still died. So there had to have been a reason they died. So notice what he says, verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. Before the Mosaic law at Sinai, people sinned. But before the law was given, there was a key difference. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now this is exactly the same point Paul already made back in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, where there is no law, there also is no violation. Now let me remind you of what he's not saying in either of these verses. Paul is not saying that if you don't know God's written law, sin isn't really sin, and it doesn't really make you guilty. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Here it's clear this is not what he's saying. Notice, for all who have sinned without the written law will also perish. They'll be judged without the law. Why? Because the substance of the law is written on their heart. That's what he's going to explain in the next couple of verses. Then he says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So nobody escapes. Everybody sins. Everybody's judged. So that's not what he's saying then. And if you doubt that, just think of Genesis. Think of between Adam and Moses. Think about the flood. Think about the Tower of Babel. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Clearly they sinned and clearly they were judged. So that isn't what Paul's teaching here. Paul was teaching and is teaching that without God's written law, sin is not as serious an offense. Once we have the written law, sin is even worse. It becomes willful transgression. I've given you the illustration of if you blow through a, a, 
a school zone at 55 miles an hour and you don't know it's a school zone, you are still guilty, you're still going to get a ticket. But it's a lot worse if you know it's a school zone and you willfully endanger the lives of those children. Calvin writes, He who is not instructed by the written law when he sins is not guilty of so great a transgression as he who knowingly breaks and transgresses the law of God. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. In other words, everyone from Adam to Moses still died. Death held complete sovereignty. There was only one person between Adam and Moses who didn't die. Who was it? Enoch in Genesis 5. Everybody else died. And the fact that everyone died before the written law proves that God was crediting the guilt of Adam's sin to them. That's Paul's point. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. The word offense here is the word transgression. It means to violate a known law. Between Adam and Moses, there was no specific verbal or written law of God. There had been for Adam, don't eat of that tree. But between Adam and Moses, there was no specific oral or written law of God for them to break. So there was no express violation of a specific verbal or written command like Adam had done. And Paul's point is this. Even though between Adam and Moses, those people who lived did not overtly violate an expressly revealed command of God, they all died, including even infants who hadn't sinned at all. How? Why? Why would they die? Death is a sentence for sin. Paul says there can only be one explanation. It's because they all sinned in Adam as their representative, and they received the sentence of death. Now, Paul finishes verse 14 with a fascinating phrase. He says, Adam is a type of him who was to come. He's going to spend the rest of this paragraph explaining that, but let me give you the key similarities between the type, between Adam and Christ. What are they? Number one. God appointed both as representatives. They are official legal representatives. Number two, God appointed them both as representatives over their seed or their descendants. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Adam's physical seed are all those who are in him. That is all, all humanity. Christ's spiritual descendants are seed are all those who are in Him, that is, all who believe in Him. God appointed them over their seed. Thirdly, God appointed both as the only two representatives of humanity. If you're taking notes, jot 1 Corinthians 15.45 in your notes, because there Paul says there was the first man, Adam, and then there was the last Adam, Christ. Christ is the true and better Adam. And you notice what he says? He says the first Adam and he doesn't say the second Adam, he says the last Adam. Why does he say that? Because he wants us to understand that there have only been, there always will only be two official representatives, Adam and Christ. There's the first Adam and there's the last Adam. There are only two heads of the human race. The first was Adam, the second and the last Adam is our Lord Jesus Christ. And you are either in Adam or in Christ. Those are the only two possibilities. Number four, fourth similarity. 
God credits the results of the work of both of those representatives to their seed or descendants. We have all received the consequences for Adam's actions. We were all in Adam. And therefore, according to the rest of this passage, we get sin, we get legal guilt or condemnation, and we get death. But for some of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, if you're here and you have believed in Christ, you have repented and believed in Him, then you have now received instead the benefits and blessings of Jesus' actions. Instead of sin, you get His righteousness. Instead of condemnation, legal guilt, you get justification. You're declared right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And instead of death in all of its forms, you get eternal life. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of The True and Better Adam. Join us next time for part five. Are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas campus. Join Pastor Tom Pennington as he hosts the Master's Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, March 24th through the 27th at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in the church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.